Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome Friday morning show for you today, including we'll talk about that speeding Porsche on Southwest Marine Drive, 187 kilometers an hour in an 80 zone. Now, this was a young driver with a learner's license, and he is learning a hard lesson now. Police impounded his Porsche. We'll talk about this case on the show today. I got an email from a listener yesterday, Gail. She lives near Southwest Marine Drive, and she told me, yeah, welcome to my world. This happens all the time in this part of Marine Drive, basically like a Formula One racetrack. They're racing and speeding through there all the time. So I'll tell you all about that on the show today as well. Also on the show today, oh, this is going to be great. I've got Dan Hurd on the show today. This guy, he's like a real-life Yukon Cornelius, gold prospector. This guy's an expert gold panner, and he loves to explore the riverbanks of the lower mainland searching for gold, and he finds gold. There is gold in Nemnar Fraser River. You should check out his TikTok videos. They're super fun. He says if you go down to the Fraser River with a shovel and a pan, and just uh, just about anywhere, you find flakes of gold in the mud and the rocks. Now, you know, this can be kind of laborious, back-breaking work, all right? And the flakes of gold are, are small, so you're probably not going to strike it rich like Yukon Cornelius, but you can have a lot of fun. And it will be fun to talk to him on the show today, too. So we have all that, and we have lots more on the show today as well. But first... We start with the stresses and strains in our healthcare system, especially our backlogged and overcrowded emergency rooms. Now, check this out now. We're getting another indicator here of the problems, and that is the rising number of people who go to an emergency room, wait for treatment, and then just give up and leave without being treated. CTV News, uh, tip of the hat to them, their reporter Penny Daflos here. The, in some hospitals, this number has reached 10% of patients who show up at the ER and then give up, just walk away without being treated. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod, Lionsgate Hospital. It is always great to have him on. Dr. Kevin McLeod, thank you for coming on today. Mike, I'm happy to be here. Hey, first off, if you're going 186 kilometers an hour, on a on a street like that, it, you not only should your car be impounded, but you, you're without a license for five years till you grow up, right? I mean that that's ridiculous. Oh my god! Oh yeah, I mean that's <laughs> like using your car like a weapon. And, Absolutely, you know, or sell that Porsche, and you know what? Donate it back to the healthcare system where, yeah. where somebody like that's going to hit somebody and hurt them. You, you know, I, I'm I'm all for you know, being reasonable with punishments, but sometimes we're a little bit unreasonable with the consequences that, um, that we give out. So, 
Totally. We'll talk about that on the show today for sure. So there's a lot of interest in that story. So, Kevin, let's talk about this situation in our hospitals now. And this is really interesting, some of these numbers that are coming up. In some hospitals, the number up to 10% or more of what we call, this is known as the walkaway rate. Okay, so these are patients that show up in the emergency room and the wait is so long, they just give up and walk away without being treated. I want to get your thoughts on that. Let's listen first here. This is Dr. Craig Murray, Emergency Medicine Director, Fraser Health. Let's listen. It's a a national phenomenon where uh, all emergency departments are really strained with the demands they're facing right now. And so we we struggle to see um, patients as quickly as we would like. Well, yeah, they're struggling for sure. Kevin, what are you what are you seeing in the front lines, and what do you think of that number? Ten percent of patients walking away. Um, you know, to be honest, it's hard for me to say if the number is accurate. It probably varies from hospital to hospital. There, there's definitely people that walk away. You know, you also have to look at who's who's coming to emergency. I mean, the, the person who's coming in with a stroke or acute heart attack isn't walking away. Um, you know, and, and then you got to question and say, well, what, why, if somebody's able to walk away, like, well, why are they coming there in the first place? And it's, it's not that patient's fault, but there aren't other services, right? Like we've, we've blown gazillions of tax dollars on, on urgent care centers and, and then we can't staff them. You know, we, we, we seem to have seen the collapse of primary care. Like people can't get in anywhere else. I, I have, you know, on any given day, patients walking in without an appointment because I met them five years ago for a different problem. They, they don't know where to go. Um, and the, the much bigger number is how many people are not going to emergency, not because they should be, but because they have no other access to, to care. Yeah. Now, I, 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 mean, I would never, ever, ever breach confidentiality, but I've got multiple patients I'm actively managing right now who, who have really... Careful, I have to be careful I don't swear because it makes me so angry. Like people who have really significant medical problems that should have been caught or dealt with months ago, and now that problem spread throughout their body or something else, and now they're going to have a bad outcome. And these aren't people yeah. who are 90, not that I'm ageist, but they, these are young people, young dad with kids. And, you know, these are people who are going to have a really potentially bad outcome because of an inability to properly access the system. And I think, I think most of us out there who, who are not needing to access the system don't really think about it. They're, they're kind of getting burnt out by hearing constantly discussions about the healthcare system. But, you know, when you really need it and you can't access it, it it's that's devastating. For are you t- when, So when you're talking about people who are going to have a bad outcome there, are you talking about, like, undiagnosed cancers? Is that sure one cancer example? would be a yeah. great, great example, right? Where, you know, somebody's not able to get in for, for proper testing. There's a delay in the diagnosis. There's a delay in actually getting to care. And if you, if you don't have a family doc or you don't have a way to access the system, you may be in that 10% who even walked away from emergency because, God, it's that 14-hour wait. I can't, you know, but this pain's been bugging me for months. Like, I don't know, maybe I'll try a walk-in clinic tomorrow. You know, when when if we'd seen that three months ago, you, you would have had one little cancer there that maybe we cut out. Once you got a whole bunch, well, we can't cut it out. Yeah. So, it, it it that delay has a huge huge impact on people. I, I've walked through the emergency room many times, like the waiting area, 
um, you know, they ask us not to go through that way, but I, I still often will go through that way because it's, it's instructive to sort of see what's happening for the day. And, I, you know, I'll see patients that I know who, who I know don't have access to primary care. And sometimes we'll just clear them right out of the waiting room saying, you know, not a real name, but Joe, you got to come out. Like, no, no, you don't yeah. need to be here. I see what's going on, you know, but they, they just don't know where else to go. And, and if you're elderly or not, you know, super tech savvy, you can't get booked in for a walk-in clinic or something else. Again, where, where do you go? Yeah. And for people, this walk away rate at emergency rooms. So people who show up and then they, they face that long wait and then they give up, they just walk away without being treated. Obviously in an emergency room, you, you triage these patients. Like if you show up and you're in, in a medical emergency or you're bleeding or there's some, there's some other emergency, you get treated first. And if your your ailment is minor, that's when you have to wait. So it, it would appear the people who are walking away from the emergency room have got very minor ailments, right? Or else they would have been treated more quickly. Well, you know, yeah, I agree in general, but, but not always, right? Because that yeah. minor ailment may be a harbinger of, of something bigger. So, you know, I, I, there was somebody in emergency the other day who, who got sent there from a walk-in clinic really to try to expedite getting in to see a gastroenterologist for a scope. Um, you know, it's not a great use of an emergency room. I mean, I, I don't think that that should happen, but because they can't access the system another way and that walk-in clinic doc doesn't necessarily have the the connection I might have to text the gastroenterologist to say, hey, fit Joe in on Friday, you know, then and they get sent there. Well, that person very easily could walk away. It's not urgent. But if they walk away and then delay things by six or eight weeks until their pain's really bad, and then you find out that, hey, that little thing in your stomach spread to your liver, well, that's a problem, right? Like, you know, they did not need to be in the emergency room for that problem but they don't have another way to access the system. The, the other thing is it's very much like a bridge, right? Like, you, you know, you look at the Lionsgate Bridge, you can keep adding more and more cars, everything keeps flowing fairly well, and then eventually you add that one extra car, the whole thing's stuck at a standstill. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's the same with healthcare. You keep adding more and more people to the emergency department, and eventually you just hit this breaking point where, well, everything's at a standstill because we can't even get people out of the emergency to get the next person in. There's not a physical stretch your bed to put them in. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of the point that we're at. And there's, there's just such, you know, I think the government's trying, but there's such little out of the box thinking, um, you know, physician assistants, right? So right. every single province has physician assistants working except BC. This is not some expensive solution. There are physician assistants in our province who live here doing non-medical jobs because they can't get licensed. You know, we don't have a regulatory licensing system like that. That doesn't have to be a four to five year bureaucratic problem. That should be, you know, somebody from the health ministry all the way to the minister level in a room with the right people saying we are going to solve this today before we go home. You know, there, there's sort of just this like slow as molasses to to make change and. God, does the public ever want more rapid change? Yeah, and especially when it comes to just touching on that point about getting more doctors online and more healthcare professionals into the system. We, we're in a, we're going to talk later on the show today about our, our very ambitious immigration targets here in Canada. We've set very lofty targets to bring new Canadians into, into Canada. And they're targeting like a, a lot of healthcare professionals. But then you hear, you hear stories about like a foreign trained doctor who will come to Canada 
desperately needed, and then they will face all this waiting time and bureaucracy and red tape and delays in trying to get licensed to actually practice here. Are you, are you hearing yeah. about that? Mike, Mike, absolutely. Let me give yeah. you a real perfect example yeah. that is going to dramatically negatively impact thousands of patients on the North Shore. So fabulous family doc. I helped train her, like, you know, really, really good, went through the Canadian system, has a very big, busy practice, you know, has 1,500 plus patients in her practice. Her husband did his training um, in large part of the Mayo Clinic in the States. He has to complete part of the residency here. Um, he has tried for four years through this bureaucratic system um, to get to get into the additional training that he needs. Um, he's wow. worked with me. He's volunteered in my office to keep his skills up. He's really good. I trust him with patients, but he cannot get that training. Um, and, you know, they've got young kids, and eventually they've now just decided we're moving to Oregon. Oh. Um, so, so they're moving to the States, not because it's better money or they want to go there. Well, now we lose him as a potential right. family physician. We lose her. Her 1,500-plus patients now have nowhere to go and will be in that emergency department making that 10%, 11%. You know, and, okay. and why? Like, wh- why? Like, why does that have to be so complicated? Like nurses, you know, we have all these nurses who are coming, immigrating here, but it's so hard to get them licensed. Like, why, why don't we have a, a program where, you know what, like, if you're a Canadian trained nurse with five years of experience, you can have somebody paired up with you that'll share the workload. You're going to teach them the Canadian system, depending where right. their training was for three to six months. And in exchange, you as the experienced nurse, we're going to give you an extra $10,000 to say thanks for that. We're going to pay that person in training. And at the end of three months, you know what? Now we have two people and we have a happier experienced nurse. This is the type of out of the box thinking that you were talking about. And I think that's what we need. Kevin, thank you for your time today. I always appreciate it. Anytime. Okay, let's talk about the speeding Porsche here on Southwest Marine Drive now. What is the deal there in that section of road there? It sounds like there's a lot of speeding and street racing going on along there, along there, according to some emails I've received from listeners here. This Porsche, 187 clicks an hour in an 80-kilometer-an-hour zone. They were nabbed by Vancouver Police Traffic Enforcement. This was a young driver with a learner's license, so the L on the back of the Porsche, and this young driver, now learning a hard lesson, police impounded the Porsche. Got Kyla Lee standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen again here to the public safety minister here. So the warning to lead-foot drivers is speeders as the police are coming to get you. Mike Farnworth. It's really quite shocking. Some drivers seem to think that the rules don't apply to them. They think that they're better than everybody else. These people will get caught, and uh, they should get nailed with uh, tickets. Okay, we're going to get nailed with tickets. Are the tickets an adequate deterrent? Let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee. Kyla is a traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Very pleased to welcome Kyla back. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming on. It's always great to have you here. So 187 clicks an hour on Southwest Marine Drive. What what, what thoughts went through your mind when you heard about this case? Uh, well, my first thought was maybe he has a defense. I mean, maybe he just got confused because he's an inexperienced driver and saw the 80 and missed the one in front of it. I'm, I'm <laughs> oh, not... no, no, no. Come on. Is that going to stand up? Is that going to stand no. up in court? 
<laughs> no, that will not stand up in court. There's really okay. no defense for this this type of excessive speed. It would be patently obvious to anybody looking at the vehicle that it was speeding excessively. I can't see a way to defend a ticket for this. Okay, what would be the penalty here? 187 in an 80 zone. A $483 fine, three penalty points, a driver uh, risk premium of $340 a year for three years. And uh, because this person has their L, their license will be yanked by the superintendent of motor vehicles for quite some time. Oh, okay. So how long would that... So there's a driving prohibition there, correct? Yes. If you get a high-risk offense as an L or an N driver, you're going to automatically get a driving prohibition. So in this case, probably three to five months. But the the police can also submit a report to Road Safety BC asking for a longer prohibition. They can submit something called a high-risk driving incident report. And I would not be surprised if they did that in this case. Okay, that's very interesting. And who decides that? Like, who decides how long the, the, the prohibition lasts? The superintendent of motor vehicles makes that decision, so they'll review the driving record, the driver's level of experience, and then they'll send the letter and say, this is how long we think you should lose your license for. Okay, very interesting. Now, this was a young driver, Vancouver Police Department disclosed here, that it was an L, so the learner's license, so an L on the back of the vehicle. And police also disclosing there there were four other young people in the vehicle, is that is that allowed for no. an L? Okay. No, as an L driver, you have to have a supervisor sitting in the seat next to you, unless there was a supervisor in the seat next to him, and then they were immediate family members. That would be allowed, but it doesn't sound like that was the case, and it doesn't sound like there was any supervisor in the vehicle. Okay. What do you think about these penalties here? So let's go over that again for a minute. So the ticket is, was it, did you say 487 bucks is the, the ticket? 480. 483. 483 is the ticket. You get the points on your record. How much is that penalty premium a year? $340 a year for three years. So okay. it's a little over $1,000. Okay, 1000 bucks, 187 in an 80 zone, kids driving a Porsche. I, I, I don't know, Kyla, you tell me, is this an adequate deterrent or do you think the penalty needs to be tougher? I think when we see driving behavior like this, the penalty should be tougher. And it can be. The Supreme Court of Canada has ruled that, you know, excessive speeds can on their own constitute dangerous driving. And I don't think any court would have difficulty convicting somebody of dangerous driving if it was proven that they were going 100 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. This driver could have faced criminal charges and maybe should have. All right. How about the, the value of the car here? Is that ever a factor when you have an expensive, souped-up sports car, is that ever an aggravating factor in a case like this and the penalties, the penalty is more severe or no? I mean, it wouldn't be an aggravating factor. It would essentially amount to punishing people on the basis of their wealth. I know that there are some suggestions that people should, you know, speeding fines should be proportionate to, for example, the person's income or proportionate to the value of the vehicle. There is some attractiveness to that, but... It does get messy when you deal with situations like if this person was driving a vehicle that was borrowed, that didn't belong to them, and then they're paying a fine associated to the value of the vehicle when maybe they don't have the means to do that. Okay, let's on that precise point here, it is interesting to talk about this income index traffic fine idea. New Westminster City Council recently passed a resolution calling for this. So the higher your income 
the higher the fine would be. And they're not the only ones. On an earlier show, I spoke to Sandwich City Councillor Teal Phelps Bonderoff, and he is calling for the same thing. He says we should have income-based fines for traffic offences because he says, look, if you are a super rich person, a ticket, the penalties that we just described, I mean, that's just the cost of doing business. That's that's nothing for a rich person. You've got to make the fines higher in order for it to be effective. Here's what he had to say to me, Kyla, and then I will get your thoughts. Let's listen here. For example, um, in 2015, a Finnish businessman, um, he has an annual, annual income of 6.5 million euro. He was going 65 in a 50 zone, and he got dinged with a 54,000 euro ticket. You know, this is the kind of person where a $300 ticket might mean a slightly less good dessert wine. Um, but he's going to think <laughs> twice before he, uh, you know, he, he speeds again because $54,000 might be a particularly nice uh, Greek vacation. Okay, so $54,000 for speeding in Finland where they have this system. The, the fine is based on your income. What do you think of that idea? I mean, I kind of cringed when I heard that he was only going 15 over the speed limit because that's yeah. not uncommon traffic speed, certainly in the lower mainland. But, um, you know, the, tying the fines to the income, it, there are a lot a lot of meritorious ideas to it. Like it deters people who are otherwise not deterred by, by speeding ticket fines. I do think that we have other consequences because we have this driving prohibition regime, because we have penalty points. There are other methods in place to deter people besides just having fines. And knowing that your license is going to be taken away can be expensive for a lot of people, too, even if they can afford to pay the fine for a ticket. So I think we have more, perhaps, than in Finland. I also worry that, you know, for people who can sort of hide their income in corporations, people who are uh, professionals, who, um, you know, their income is paid to their company as opposed to directly to them, that people who are actually wealthy may end up paying fines associated with not being wealthy because of the way that we shelter a lot of taxes in Canada. Sure, yeah. People are, some people are very uh, effective at hiding their actual income. And in this particular case, it's been pointed out that this is a young driver with a learner's license driving a Porsche, and we don't know a whole lot more details beyond that, but it could very well be the case that, you know, mom and dad bought the, bought the car for this guy. You know, this person may not have a high income. Maybe mom and dad are rich and bought the kid a Porsche. That might be the case. So, you know, an income-tested fine might not be targeting the right person there. That's why some of the listeners yesterday said to me, okay, base the fine on the value of the vehicle. So if you stop a speeding Porsche or Lamborghini or Ferrari or something, then wallop them really hard. Base it on the value of the vehicle. Kyla, what do you think of that? Because I just wonder if, if police might start you know, deliberately targeting sort of higher-end sports cars and pull them over. I mean, people who drive higher-end sports cars already feel like they're being deliberately targeted by police because their cars do stand out. They make a lot of noise. I don't like the idea of tying fines to the value of the vehicle when it comes to commercial vehicles. If you get a speeding ticket in a bus or you're, you know, a, a, a wage worker driving a, you know, a big city truck, for example, a garbage truck, those vehicles are very, very expensive. But you might not be making the income to pay a, a speeding ticket fine or a ticket fine associated with the value of that vehicle. So it could have a disproportionate mm. effect on people who are working and driving vehicles in the course of their work that they don't personally own. Okay, speaking to Kyla Lee about the speeding Porsche on Southwest Marine Drive, 187 clicks an hour, more than 100 kilometers over the speed limit. Lots of calls. Derek in Vancouver. Hi, Derek. Go ahead. 
Hey, Mike. Good to talk to you. I'm out that way all the time on Southwest Marine Drive and speeding cars from time to time. But the biggie are speeding motorcycles. And they just go flying by. Um, You can't really tell easily if they're learners or or not. But um, the other place that's really bad for this is Cypress Bowl Road. And, um, you know, I drive a Jaguar. It's a fast car. I don't use it that way. I know I can't, so I don't. And these people need to do that too. But the temptation is there. Um, You know, I have a very close friend who's got a Maserati. And he drives it like I drive my Jaguar, you know, intelligently and safely. Derek, and thank you very, thank you very much for the call, man. I I appreciate it. Kyla, what about those speeding motorcycles? Oh, there's definitely a, a, a huge enforcement uh, measure taken against motorcycles. I've dealt with cases where motorcycles are pulled over in packs um, and cases even where the police get a helicopter to track motorcycles as they go through traffic to get better evidence of them speeding over a longer distance. Blair calling from Lanceville. Hi, Blair. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I've had two Porsche Boxsters. The first one cost 11000 and the second cost 28000 so, I mean, both could be very, very fast. Tying to the price of a vehicle, a guy getting a, driving a Honda Accord would pay, you know, a brand-new car would pay more in fines. So I think the only solution would be just steeper fines in the multi-thousand dollar range. Okay, that's very interesting, Blair. Thank you for sharing that. Kyla, do you think that, do the, does the government routinely review these fines, fine levels and amounts? Review them. They are probably not as often as they should. We see a lot of focus, um, as you and I have talked about, on the distracted driving fines and less yeah. so on the speeding fines in BC. Yeah. Gary in Pitt Meadows. Hi, Gary. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Um, down, I come from Australia, and down there they have this law called the Hoon Law. And uh, it's what it is basically is three strikes and you're out. On, on the first strike, the, um, the government will come in, they'll take, you, take your car, they'll take it to a, a yard, and they will crush it in the crushing. Thing. Whoa! And they don't. They, they don't care what it is, whether it's a Ferrari, a Mitsubishi, or a Lamborghini. Three strikes, and you're out, and that's all there is to it. And they put it on. They tell everybody that it's coming on television so that other people can see it happen, and then think twice about uh, wanting to speed themselves. I don't agree with the um, finding the a uh, uh, percentage of their annual income because I think that just uh, affects the family. I think uh, you know, given the percentage of the car, ten percent, fifty percent of what the car's worth. Okay. No, okay. So you're saying that in Australia, you get three, three strikes in your road. You get three traffic tickets, and they they crush your car. That's right. They, and they crush it. Crikey! <laughs> Crikey, <laughs> mate! What, what do you th- what do you think of that? No, I think it's a bonza one. You think it's what? A bonza. It's a, a bonza. What? You think it's a good idea? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So All right. Australia right now. <laughs> wow. Australia. Yeah. Don't speed in Australia. Three strikes and you're crushed. Doug in Surrey. Hey, Doug, go ahead. Hi, uh, folks. Yeah, this is long overdue out here in Surrey. Everybody thinks of the tall buildings as an echo chamber for their own private enjoyment. But uh, if, uh, like that thing that happened down in front of the Hotel Vancouver the other day, if somebody uh, dies in a setup like that, well, fine. They. They uh, don't get a driver's license for five years. Uh, of course, the insurance can hang a, hang them out to dry on that. But uh, if the I uh, like the Australian idea, crush the car. Crush but, the car. Uh, 
if you yeah. give them a five-year suspension if they're caught driving again, well, hey, they get some free time in the Crowbar Hotel. That's not the back street of Daytona down the main drag uh, of, of Surrey or Vancouver. Just, uh, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're caught driving and your uh, license is suspended, fine, you're going to jail. Doug, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze in one more here. Rick on the line in Port Moody. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Hey, that's, uh, we've got to remember that not, not all these people are, they shouldn't be getting worse, uh, worse uh, sentences than murderers and, and the like. But uh, it's, it's kind of in the same line as the Australian. Uh, I, I think really what you've got to do is, is um, impound the vehicle. I mean, set a threshold of like if you're going 50 kilometers over or something, it's an automatic impound for, I don't know, say two days for every kilometer you're over. Plus, the heavy fines won't hurt either. You, you get them in both ends. I mean, the pocketbook is one thing, but a lot of people, that's just chump change for them. So it really doesn't yeah. matter. Take away their pride thing for an, a number of, you know, a, a period. So, you know, 50 kilometers an hour at two days, a, a, an impound would be, a, you know, three months, basically, you lose the car. Thank Something you, Rick. Like Thank you, Rick, for the call. I think, Kyla, did you, I believe with an L, a learner's license, is it an automatic impound? We just got 30 seconds. Any, any excessive speeding ticket will have an automatic seven-day impound. And if it's a second impound for the vehicle, then the impound will be upgraded to 30 days. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about poaching of wildlife in British Columbia, hunting out of season. How big of a problem is this in our province? In the headlines this week, a B.C. provincial court judge finds a Vancouver Island man guilty of illegally killing a black bear and her cub is disturbing story uh, court heard that the man shot these two bears with a, a crossbow and also a, a long bow while they were in a tree there was a key witness in this case this happened in tofino back in 2021 a witness who was staying at an airbnb rental uh, testified that they had this they had seen this happen the man in charge here, Ryan Owen Miller, told the court that you acted in self-defense. The judge, not buying it, found him guilty on these charges. The judge said this was not a fair hunt. This was not an ethical hunt. There were witnesses here. He found that the defendant here had fabricated some versions of the events. Sentencing set to happen here in this case. In September, I'm going to talk about this now with my guest, Dennis Pemble. He's a former wildlife control officer in British Columbia, and I highly recommend his book to you. The last wildlife control officer in B.C., 30 years of dealing with problem predators. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dennis, thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. You bet, Dennis. Thank you. This uh, story has gotten a lot of attention in BC this week with it, with this case. And this is a disturbing, kind of shocking case. Dennis, you had a long career as a wildlife control officer. Did you ever um, were you ever involved in any sort of poaching cases? 
And I did a, did a lot of enforcement, but I worked with the local conservation officers in, in a lot of these cases. Sometimes I was called in um, to actually hunt down the animal because a lot of times these situations turn into an animal being wounded and running off. And, of course, after the, the resident wounds it, he goes back in the house. And, unfortunately, the conservation officer service, people have to go and track these animals down. Yeah, how common... How co- what kind of animals would you have to track down when they call you in? Well, most of the time it was actually bears because of our high population of bears in BC. Um, but it was also cougars and, and even people we had to track down something deer. We had been shot by actually crossbows and arrows and and they got they're wounded and they had to track them down too, just because we don't want them to be suffering. And um, yeah. you know, a wounded bear is you know, the, when this happens, is a danger to de- residents nearby and stuff. So that's the reason we called in to track them down. Yeah, how difficult is a uh, case is that to track? I mean, you you worked with dogs, like tracking dogs, during your career, right? Yes, I always had um, almost uh, you know five or six hounds in my truck uh, daily. They were my dogs, and um, and I do you know got cases. I had a case in West Vancouver where. Actually, the police and a resident had a cougar up a tree, and the cougar had killed a resident's house cat. And I talked to the police, and they said, should we shoot it? And I said, no, don't shoot it, because I'm on my way, and I was maybe an hour away of that. Anyhow, the cougar decided to come out of the tree, and uh, they shot it. And, of course, it ran off, and, it, you know, a lot of times people do take these shots, and they don't make good shots. And so now I have to put my hounds on this cougar that's wounded, so... Uh, which is a great concern to me for the safety of my hounds and myself. Yeah. So we put the dogs on this cat, and of course, uh, what I thought was going to happen did. Uh, of course, the hounds caught up to the cougar and then got into a big fight with it, and I had to run in there with the, my handgun and actually kill the cougar before um, before he injured the dogs. Or you know, so yeah, those situations do happen, and we we discourage people from shooting any wildlife in their backyard. So. Yeah, for for sure. And let's talk a little bit about about poaching here, especially when it comes to black bears. In this case, you have a, a black bear and a cub here shot with arrows. In, in this very unfortunate and tragic kind of case here, very disturbing. Let's have a listen to Ernie Cooper here. Ernie is a, a BC environmental consultant, has worked with the government. And here he is talking about the poaching, specifically poaching of black bears in British Columbia. Let's listen. In Canada, black bears are in really good shape. We have a lot of black bears and their numbers are increasing. And at this point, poaching is not a conservation concern. However, it does occur. There is a market for their gallbladders, but there is a market for their paws and other products from bears. Yeah, is that still going on? I mean, we've heard in the past about, you know, people who would poach a black bear in order to, for med- traditional medicines like a bear gallbladder. Dennis, is, did you ever hear about that during your career? Yes, I know the, the conservation officer was involved in that <clears throat> all, at all times. It's still going on today, and um, I've been retired for about 15 years, but um, there's some big cases where they um, seized uh, gallbladders. And, um, yeah, these these things, you know, BC is a, a very large area, and uh, people can get out and actually poach bears and, and not be caught. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult to catch these people. 
Yeah, for sure. And I know that there is a there isn't a, a line, a, a phone line that people can call to re, to report poachers, uh, for sure. And I, you know, certainly I would encourage people to do that if you see someone breaking the law. But man, when you've got such a large area, do you think there's a there's a poaching problem in, in British Columbia that maybe goes undetected? Yeah, like I say, it's uh, <laughs> it's such a large area that. Um, you know, and there's a limited number of conservation officers out there, and uh, you know, the, and and the police do get involved in some of the situations. Um, but yeah, it's it's extremely difficult to be out there to catch these people. Yeah, what is the um, the law when it comes to self defense? Let's like like let's say someone feels threatened by a grizzly bear or something, and they shoot a bear. Is that yeah, is that is that legal? Because like in this case. You know, this guy who got rung up by this judge this week, he had argued like, oh, you know, I shot these bears in self-defense and the judge wasn't buying it based on the evidence. But what is the law around that? Like, you are allowed to defend yourself, aren't you? Yes, you can defend yourself and you can defend your your livestock or your property. But, you know, in cases that uh, people, you know, have bears show up in their backyard and if you commit yourself to taking a weapon out there to uh, confront the bear, your options are limited because now you're going out near the bear, and uh, if the bear does charge you, um, you're going to have to shoot it to defend yourself. So, yeah, we don't encourage people to do that. But, um, yeah, and, and yeah, bears do charge people, and, um, and, and they can defend themselves. And what should they do in that case? Phone the, phone the BC Conservation Officer Service? Yes, they should. They yeah. hopefully should stay stay in the house for one thing, and uh, yeah, call for assistance if they, if they think it's serious enough. And when you're dealing with uh, bears, especially the females with cubs, they're extremely dangerous. Especially when you get into the grizzly bears, females with cubs. I mean, I was charged many, many times by bears over the years, but uh, that was my job. So I, you know, I I I was able to read bears fairly good, but. Uh, you're putting yourself at risk when you go near any any bear like that. Okay, continuing my discussion now with Dennis Pemble, former wildlife control officer in British Columbia, recommend his great new book. Okay, Dennis, just before the break there, you were mentioning that you had been charged by bears many times over a, a long career. And let's talk a little bit about that. Like, was it, these grizzly bears, black bears, or both? Uh, both uh, the, the the grizzly bears, of course, were the worst. They were they're so very aggressive, and um, and we talk about bears and uh, females with cubs. I mean, if you encounter a female grizzly bear with a cub, you have to be extremely cautious because she is going to be so aggressive. And if you get near her cub and um, you make the slightest noise, or or the cub makes the slightest noise, and the mother bear thinks there's a problem. She's going to come over there and straighten it out real quick, and you're going to be in a lot of trouble when she does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is kind of um, a fear I've always had in the back of my mind. I've, I, I enjoy. I'm an angler. I enjoy fishing. I've done some fishing on some uh, some remote rivers, and and I've always thought like, oh, the last thing I want to see is, is a grizzly bear here. Like, if you got a a grizzly charging you. Is that where you? Is that when you play dead? That's what. That's what I've heard. You should not try to run. Yeah, it's you know once the bear, yeah, the bears uh, when they charge, uh, there's what they call buff charges too, and uh, and grizzlies and black bears will stand up on their back feet. Um, they're 
usually just trying to see you or smell you. They have not very good eyesight, but um, but when they do actually charge, um, and if they and when they what they call a bluff charge, they come, they'll actually come flying at you, pawing at the ground and snorting and grunting and popping. And what that bear is trying to do is it's trying to tell you you got to leave, but you don't yeah. still do not want you still do not want to turn and run because that could trigger an attack. But uh, and most attacks uh, with grizzlies and black bears are just maulings. Uh, unfortunately, some people do uh, get killed, but it's uh, a lot of times the bear will just beat you up and, and then walks away because you're either in territory or maybe you startled it and it has cubs. So there's but there's a few different reasons these things happen. But uh, keeping calm and um, stop, don't stop thinking um, is your best bet. Okay, what about a black bear? If you get, you get a, a little tangle with a black bear, I've heard that that's, that's when you can try to fight back. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you are being attacked and uh, you, if you go into the, the, the position you think you're going to uh, play dead, and the bear does not break off the attack and he continues um, the attack, um, your best bet is if you can grab a rock or a stick and you got to go after the bear's nose and its eyes, you can hit mm. him on the other parts of his body and he could care less. You have to try and hurt him. Okay, Dennis, let's talk a little bit about some of these uh, hair-raising encounters you've had here that you detail in your book. Like you mentioned before the break about, tell me about being charged. What, what was the craziest uh, craziest encounter you had with a grizzly? Well, it was up the coast. Uh, I did a lot of work up in the coast of British Columbia on the, in the logging camps, which we'd fly in, and uh, we'd have problems with the bears, uh, the grizzly bears, and they'd be actually breaking into the camps. They'd, they'd break into the cookhouses, and they're so extremely uh, aggressive. Um, but we got called in on this one bear that was breaking into the cookhouse, and we went up there, and uh, I set some snares, and uh, actually I... When I came into camp, the bear came out of the bush and actually charged us. And I thought, you know, that was kind of unusual. So the bear was fairly aggressive. So anyhow, the, the bear walked over to the cookhouse and jumped in the back of a pickup truck. They, they were just going to move the garbage out to the dump. And we went over there, and I managed to throw a bunch of rocks and yelling. And I had a partner with a rifle. I wanted to drive the bear off so I could set a snare, and which we did. We finally drove it off and set the snare and caught the bear. And we were flying by helicopter to a remote inlet. And um, so we flew this bear, and uh, we had a makeshift uh, trap, and we set him right close to the bush line and pointed the door towards the bush. And um, we were on the edge of a river sandbar, so there was no place for us to go. And my partner went to the edge of the river and stood there, and I, my job was to open the door of the trap. So I, I stuck a stick in the edge of the trap door just to slow it down because I was concerned about this bear because he was so aggressive. And he wasn't a, a large bear. He was a, a, a adult male. Anyhow, I let the, 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 took the tra- tra- latch on the door, and I ran back to where my partner was, about 15 yards of um, meters beside him. And I just had my handgun, which was a six-shot, 357. But um, anyhow, the bear comes out of the trap, and... Instead of running in the bush, which we were hoping for, he turned and he started running straight towards me. And I'll never forget seeing that bear with his ears laying back and his strides were huge. And I stood there with my gun pointing at him. I was just hoping, hoping, because we've already tagged this bear, flew in with a helicopter, hoping he's going to stop. Yeah. Finally, and my partner's waiting. He's not going to do anything until I do something. So finally, it's, I, I can't I can't stop. You know, i got to shoot him. So. 
I fired a shot, and my partner right away shot across and missed him. I shot a couple more times, and my partner shot across again and hit him this time. And um, I only had six shots, and the last shot, I finally got into him, and he was about uh, a few meters uh, in front of me. So that was, oh, that, no. that was the most, you know, scariest ones. And Oh, uh, man. You had no choice. You had no choice there. That like this was a case where you're trying to relocate this bear and release it back into the wild, right? Yes, we had yeah. um, actually had two bears in camp. I had caught another bigger male, and we, it was still back in camp. And um, the helicopter went back to pick it up and bring it back to us. And the helicopter comes back and we explained to the helicopter pilot, and we had to shoot this bear. You know, it's a lot of work and cost going into them. And um, the last thing we wanted to do was after all this work was put the animal down. But, uh, well, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's you know, this is the kind of the tough part of your your job. Hey, Ron, we just got, or, or uh, Dennis, we just have uh, one minute left here. Like, when you have an encounter like that, what does that do to your, like, do you, are you, you know, does that give you a little hesitation about going back into the bush the next day, or you just get, you got to get right back on the horse, right? Well, it's, you know, my job was an adrenaline rush, and um, I enjoyed it, so it was, and, but I, you know, I, when I'd leave a complaint like that, something like that happened, I think it hit me mostly when I was driving home, but especially from the Sunshine Coast, I had to go on the ferries, and, you know, you start thinking about my wife and the kids. So, oh. yeah, that's, that's when it hits me, but, yeah, I just, you know, I loved it, so I could hardly wait to get to the next one, so that's what, that's what my job was, so I loved it, yeah. Dennis, I'm glad you were safe in that encounter and all the other ones that you had. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. All right, my next guest is Dan Hurd. Dan is a gold prospector. He also searches for jade and crystals. He's a rock hound in British Columbia for sure. Dan is super popular on social media. TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. He's everywhere. I'm checking out Dan's face, uh, twi- Facebook. No, your YouTube page right now. 1.1 million subscribers on YouTube. Wow, I got Dan standing by. Let's have a little listen here to Dan uh, panning for gold on the Fraser River here. This is from his TikTok channel. Let's listen. They say on the Fraser River, you can find gold panning anywhere. Let's try. I'm going to dig half a pan of material from right there. There we go. Half a pan. Here we go. We're panning away. We can find the gold. They say it's everywhere on the Fraser. It doesn't matter where you dig. Let's see if that's true. Now let's have a look. Is it true? There it is. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Oh, you got to love seeing those little gold flakes in the pan there. Let's check in with Dan Hurd now. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hiya, Dan. Hello, right. How you doing today? Oh, boy, we got a real weak connection here with you. Let's see if we can can clean that up a little bit. Okay, can you hear me okay, Dan? I can hear you very well. Okay, okay, that's a little better. Okay, here we... Okay, Dan, congratulations on all your success here. I've been checking out a lot of your videos here the last few days, and it's super fun to watch you panning for gold, searching for jade. How did you get into this? Because you were a... I think you were a teacher, too, right? Are you still a teacher as well, or...? No longer a teacher. I've actually... I've been prospecting gold time now. But I think originally I got into this when uh, I was just a teenager and my dad took me out gold panning. 
And I loved doing, I loved doing something with my dad out in the wilderness. And then when I had kids of my own, I remembered how much I loved doing it with my dad. I thought I'm going to do that same thing with my kids. And I took them out gold panning and I just fell in love with it all over again. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that because in that video we played there, you you're panning for gold on the Fraser Fraser River. Can you? T- are you allowed? Is it legal to do that? Like, can anybody can go down to any part of the Fraser River and pan for gold, or do you have to have like a permit or something? How does that work? They have claims, and uh, on that video, I would have been on one of my gold claims, my placer gold claims. Uh, but there are places that the public can go down. We have what are known as public panning reserves. And, yeah, yeah the public can go down and pan. Everyone's welcome. You don't need to have a license or anything like that. Uh, the best one in B.C. is probably in Yale, uh, right on the Fraser. And it's a great pastime. But, uh, no, where I was on that video was a private claim for sure. Okay, so if people go down to one of these recreational gold panning sites, Dan, how... How difficult is it to to find gold? Like you said there in that video, man, the gold is everywhere on the Fraser River. Is that true? Like if people went down to one of these recreational areas, they got a good chance at finding a few flakes of gold? Absolutely. Uh, the, the Yale Panning Reserve, I can almost guarantee if you know even the littlest bit about how to pan, you can find at least a flake, if not you know a few dozen flakes. Uh, the Fraser River is so unique in how widespread the gold is. Now, other rivers in BC, you have to work a lot harder at it. Uh, but the small flakes in the Fraser, they they are everywhere. Wow. Okay, that's amazing. And when I'm watching your videos, it's very exciting here to see the the gold glinting in, in the pan there. Now, when you find those little gold flakes, Dan, what do you do with those? Do you can you sell them for for money? Yeah, um, you find them in the pan, you have to suck them up, clean them up, uh, get them into their little vial and whatnot. Now, I sell all my gold through my own website where I sell pay dirt so people can buy sort of a, a bag full of dirt and try panning for themselves at home. That's how I sell my gold. But yeah, there are gold buyers out there. There's big, uh, big companies like Big Mine sell it off to smelters where they smelt the gold down to pure gold. But uh, there are gold buyers, and a lot of pawn shops will buy gold. But as I said, I sell my own through my own website. Okay, and I've been checking out your website, too. DanHerdProspecting.com is where you can find Dan's website. Okay, finding uh, finding some flakes of gold is exciting, but what about, like, a, a nugget? Like, have you, have you, what's the biggest piece of gold you ever found, like the biggest nugget? The biggest one was about eight grams in size. Now, if you visualize the last little portion of your pinky finger, like after the last knuckle, that would be about the size of a eight gram nugget. And uh, I found one eight, I found a four, and then a whole bunch, three, twos, ones. But yeah, the eight was the biggest nugget for sure. And I found that oh, on my dream claim. Oh, where, where is that? Or is that a secret? That that one that one we keep slightly secret. It is in the interior of British Columbia, beautiful river. But I have had lots of problems with claim jumpers up on that claim, so I don't advertise too much where that nugget claim is. Okay, a, a claim jumper. Okay, people may have heard of what. What exactly is that? What 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 is a claim jumper? That's someone that is going on to your private claim. So in British Columbia here, you can actually purchase the rights 
to a piece of land where you have the sole right to mine and prospect on that land. And the public can't legally go on it and take your gold. And when people go onto one of your private claims, knowingly to get the gold because they know you have good gold there, that we, we term that a claim jumper. They've jumped onto your claim to steal your gold. Uh, I have people on my claims fairly frequently by mistake. I would never yeah. uh, sort of label them claim jumpers. That's just a mistake. Go panning with your kids and you find yourself on someone's claim. I try to, you know, educate them, but usually I just welcome them to pan. It's those people that are doing it on purpose, trying to get away with something. Those are, those are the criminals out there. Those are the claim jumpers. Okay, well, you know, that's that's part of the, the, the prospecting business, I, I suppose, for sure. What was it like when you found, let's talk about that biggest nugget that you found again there, Dan. So what was it like, did you say eight grams? Eight grams, yeah. Eight, eight grams. What was that, that man, that must have been exciting. What, what, kind, what sort of, what was that, feel, what did that feel like? What was going through your mind when you saw that? Literally, I didn't believe it was actually there. The I found the first big one I found was four grams at that same site, just like basically the same spot. And when I saw it in my pan, I swished the gravels away and the nugget was just sitting there. And it took me a couple seconds looking at it to realize what I was looking at. Because usually I'm looking for really tiny specks and all of a sudden this big chunk is sitting there. And just for a few seconds, I didn't believe what it actually was. And then, then the excitement hit me for sure. Okay, I know that I'm checking out your videos here the last few days, and I mean the gold, the gold videos. I think are probably the most exciting that people enjoy watching. But you also do a lot of hunting around for other stuff like crystals and and jade, right? Tell me about jade. Um, the Fraser River obviously has lots of gold, like I said, but it also has this mineral called nephrite, and that's that's the mineral name for jade. And uh, it's quite easy to find lower quality nephrite or its precursor, serpentine, all up and down the gravel bars of the Fraser River. And that's one of my favorite uh, sort of relaxing rock hounding things to do is just walking the Fraser River bars, looking for that bright green stone and then, you know, collecting up, looking to see if it's serpentine or jade and collecting up the jade. I take it home, I cut it, I polish it, we make some jewelry out of it. And it, it's really exciting to do. It's not my favorite stone to collect, mm. but it is one of my favorite pastimes, one of the relaxing things I can do just on a calm day out in the sun, water going by you, watching the gravel bars for chunks of jade. Dan, congratulations on all your success. It's amazing, all the YouTube followers that you've collected here, and uh, I hope you find uh, an even bigger gold uh, chunk of gold, gold nugget in the days ahead. Thanks for coming on today. That's my plan for this year, big chunk of all gold. Right. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.